Welcome to episode 191 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. We got that book cast coming back. We do. And we are in some new kind of content in the book. Which yeah, is I'm exciting. excited about this. It's yeah. taken a turn. I mean, it a has. good turn, of course. And so we're moving into a, a new whole kind of way of thinking and processing reform preaching. But of course, before we get to that, the much lauded and the thing that everybody loves, the affirmations and denials. And as usual, I would love for you to kick us off, but dealer's choice here as to whether you want to deny or you want to affirm first. Uh, let's go with affirmations first. Okay. Keep so, it upbeat. I like it. I'm affirming um, fictional audiobooks, like like fiction <laughs> right. books on audiobooks, not like audiobooks that aren't real, <laughs> like making up audiobooks. No, I, I'm, I'm affirming... Listening to audiobooks on fiction, and and there's a couple reasons. So okay. I don't know about you, but sometimes I get into like a reader's slump where like I just feel like uh, you know like especially when like when you have a book in front of you that's like dense content, you sort of like for sure you get stuck, and you're like every time you go back, it's almost like you're like I'm just tired of this book, but I know I got to keep going. And so I I um I was in one of these slumps, and uh, Ashley suggested to me a couple books to read, a couple fictional books to read. And I was reading these books by uh, an author named Blake Crouch, who writes these sort of like mind tweak science fiction books. Um, and he wrote a trilogy called Wayward Pines. It's like the Wayward Pines trilogy. There was a, a, a TV show, which was not very good, but the, the, the story is really interesting. And so I couldn't find a free copy of the Wayward Pines trilogy on audio or on uh, Kindle. So I picked up the audiobook. And one of the nice things about reading fiction via audiobook is the narrator actually like does some voice acting usually to help distinguish the characters. So right. it's, it's usually really just an enjoyable experience to like listen. And it's nice because you get the story, but you can kind of like decompress a little bit. You're not experiencing that same kind of fatigue you do. And then I found that after I did a little bit of fictional reading and a little bit of listening to fictional audiobooks or fiction audiobooks, I went back to my more academic reading and I was able to like make progress a lot faster. So it was like just enough of a break and enough of a like mind shift to like get me back out of that rut and back on track. I like that. So yeah. that, what did you use for, what's the audio provider that you're using for this book? I, I have Kindle. So I have a Kindle subs or not Kindle. I have an audible subscription, so I get credits. Okay. So I had a couple credits left over that I hadn't used yet. And so I just picked up this trilogy and I've been listening through it. It's very good. Uh, it's interesting you bring this up because I've been super tempted to try that only because it's one of like the last frontiers of like quote unquote reading I haven't explored yet, which yeah. is the audiobooks thing. And for a while I thought like, Oh, well that's like cheating. You're not really reading. And yet it's just, I think a wonderful and different way to process stuff. And it yeah. might be particularly well suited, at least in my mind to fiction. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I listened to um, Amy Bird's most recent book on audiobook, and um, I wrote a review on it, and she was very gracious and reached out to me and pointed out a few just errors that I had made in my review of how I understood her. And when I went back, because I also have the Kindle version, when I went back and looked at the Kindle version, it was clear how the error happened through listening. It was like a quotation mark that you can't see in that, like you can't hear a quotation mark usually. They don't, they don't indicate that exactly. it's a quotation clearly. Right. So yeah, there are certain kinds of books 
books that that lend themselves better to audiobook than others. And fiction is one of those mediums or one of those genres that just works really well because whether someone's telling you the story, you know, sometimes you have an audio or a, a fiction book where the grammar and the actual like print format matters, but usually it doesn't. Usually it's not that big of a deal. So yeah, you're definitely right. There are definitely um, different genres that work better and fiction is a great one. I think this is a really good affirmation. Here's why twofold actually. One is because I think listening, like we talked about is a way you can actually process a lot more, a lot more quickly audibly than you can actually by reading. So we have this bias, especially like among people who think they're learned that like, well, reading is better than any other medium. And, and that's not always the true case. Right. But the second thing would be that I think fiction for those who are maybe a little bit predisposed to not like fiction because they think that that's not helpful or practical or productive. Actually, it's exactly the opposite because what I've discovered is that interspersing some good fiction, fiction and storytelling allows you to like listen to a whole course of events, especially like a narrative, and then to be active in problem solving and receiving information. And that actually really helps you with nonfiction reading. So it is actually helping you to be a better listener, to be more productive, to help you approach problems in a more creative and productive way. So I think you're right. I've actually tried to balance out more recently, like the heavy nonfiction, like technical type reading with something that kind of switches your brain into a different direction because it's like all exercise, right? I mean, we're just talking about different types of exercise for your mind. And it also provides you with like a little bit of reprieve and variety and variety is the spice of life. It is also paprika. (laughs) So uh, one little, one little disclaimer, I'll give a little bit of a language warning on Blake Crouch's books. They're very good, but he's a secular writer and he writes in a secular way. So his characters are worldly people that act like the world. So just if you're reading it, be aware that it, you know, it's, there's not too much like overtly sexual stuff, but it it is, he does drop some F bombs and stuff in his writing once in a while. So just be cautious going into that. If that's something that you uh, need to avoid. Here's the book that I've really been thinking about doing on audible or like some other subscription. I think it sounds like audibles that's more superior because I think the catalog is really deep and it's just easy and integrated. Uh, but I really have thought about, I wanted to read the whole Lord of the Rings series all over again. I thought about trying that out, but I don't know if that would be maybe like too much for my first foray. Well, you know, there's, um, there's an app called Overdrive, which is like the way you access, the way you access your local library's electronic resources, not like their card catalog, but like their electronic books and, and auto audio books. And you can get the easiest interfaces through an app called Libby. You can get the Lord of the Rings books, I'm sure, on audiobook from your local library um, oh, through the idea. Libby app. I, I was going to go through and listen to um, the Chronicles of Narnia books, and I made it through The Magician's Nephew, which I had never read The Magician's Nephew, but it was very engaging. And it was, I mean, it's super short. Um, so you can get a lot of those classic books Um through your local library on audiobook. You don't have to spend money on it. But but I mean, an Audible subscription is very affordable. It's like $15 a month and you get one book a month, regardless of the cost of the book. So you could pick up a book like, like Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which is normally like $40. You could right. pick it up for like, it basically $15. It's funny because getting that value, this would normally be the part on like a podcast where they're like, and by the way, if you sign up with our, spe- <laughs> we, we have a special link. I don't actually remember what it is. And even when we were advertising it in like episode like 17, we, we got nobody, nobody signed nobody up. Nobody used it. it. Yeah. So if you find our code somewhere out there, 
go ahead, get your free months on us, I suppose. I mean, we don't pay for it, but you can have a free month from us. But yeah, don't, I mean, don't. There's a thousand other podcasts who do free months. I'm sure you can find one if you want. I love it. This was like sub-affirmation, affirmation yeah. within an affirmation nested, Natriska affirmation. I love it. Affirmationception. Yes. All right. So good. What about you? What are you affirming? All right. I got something to affirm then that will go along with either reading or listening to an amazing piece of fiction. And that is, I've been working from home for a little while now. And one of the benefits of working from home is like you have access, of course, to everything that is in your kitchen while you are doing your work, which it's is true, you know, yeah, now it's, it's strange how much that has brought me joy, like being yeah. able to just like get up and get a piece of cheese, for instance, I, the little things. But because I have access to like all my kitchen accoutrements, one of the things I've been enjoying, and I have to tell you that I'm not, as you know, like I'm not a coffee snob, but I've really been enjoying this is I'm affirming the Hario V60 pour over way of making coffee. Are you familiar with this? Uh, I'm familiar with pour overs, so I'm not sure if there is this some special technique or is it just a pour over? It's, it's just a pour over, but it's a piece of equipment called the Hario V60. And what it looks like is it's, it's almost looks like a ceramic teacup and it sits on top of your coffee mug and you put a little filter into it and you just basically pour the, the hot water over this coffee, but it makes like an amazing, delicious, easy thing of coffee. And the cleanup is like so easy because you just dump out the filter and all you do is rinse out the little ceramic piece that you have there. But it's just so good and so easy and you can control all the elements. So like if you, the best way to make this, of course, is like really fresh coffee, just grind it up. You throw it in there. It takes two minutes and that's it. And you can control, of course, like the relative strength and the flavor that you want. And it's just amazing. I found that like for very little effort, we have a Keurig. But this thing just makes the same type of coffee to me taste like so much better. Yeah. So the fact that I've had it at home and I can just pop up real quick and make it like this is really probably not the kind of thing like you could do at work unless you're like one of those giant coffee nerds where you're like in your cup, <laughs> your kitchen, like doing that thing. And then like you get the reputation, you know, yeah. you can do it there, of course, too. But Hario V60 is something I'd recommend checking out. Totally affirm that. Yeah. Speaking of coffee. Uh, make sure everybody checks out Sipping on Theology, which is uh, one yes. of our newest members of the Society of Reform Podcasters. Um, it's a great show. Austin's a great, it is. Uh, great guy, super sharp. He's doing a series on the canon, which is really helpful. And uh, he loves coffee. So, yeah, there you go. Yeah, he's got stacks a new logo. On stacks, yep. on stacks of affirmations. Uh, first, today. Uh, affirmationception for sure. <laughs> All right, so let's go to the dark side. What do you got for denials? So, You've heard this story, but I'm going to recount this for our listeners. I'm denying bears. So <laughs> we we have had this theme over the last couple months with this COVID pandemic of nature is taking back over the the dominion that the, the small amount of dominion that man has you know etched out over the world is being uh, returned. And I have lived in this building now for five years. Uh, I've lived. You know, I've been around in this place now for probably almost 10 now. Um, It's getting close to 10 years now that I've been involved with your family in one way or another. And I have never once seen a bear at this property. And so the other night, I'm out uh, with the dog and it's probably like 830. So it's starting to get a little bit dark, but it's not dark yet by any means of the imagination. It's, It's not even really twilight, but it's starting to dim down a little bit. 
And the dog just starts barking off into the wilderness, which dogs are apt to do. They smell a rabbit in the bush or they hear something on, you know, a dog barking a mile away that you can't hear something like that. And she starts barking and charging towards my neighbor's house. And my neighbor has this big open yard. And then on the other side of the yard, there's like a tree line and a a sort of like a little wooded area. And so I'm thinking, no big deal. She saw a squirrel or a deer or something that I can't see. Or maybe she just smells something. Or sometimes dogs just bark at stuff. There's nothing there. Right. And so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm kind of frustrated because she's distracted. So she's not going to the bathroom. And I'm like, I just want to get back inside and get ready for bed. And then I hear like this galloping, like this, like a very weird sound. And I'm thinking like, that's a weird sound for a runner, but I'm thinking I'm going to turn around and see there's a jogger running by. And I turn around (laughs) and probably, what do you think from, from the backyard to the, to the street is maybe 30 feet, 40 feet. That sounds about right. Yeah. So maybe 40 feet, half, half, you know, not very far. I see a black bear walking down the sidewalk and then walking out across the street into the neighbor's yard, like 40 feet away from me. And so the, the, the dog must have heard or seen the bear on the other side of the neighbor's yard or smelled it and barked at it. And so it ran next to the neighbor's house and then walked down the sidewalk in front of the neighbor's house to then cross the street at our driveway over to the neighbor's house. A bear, a black bear, like just a black bear in the middle of the neighborhood. <laughs> Did you ever see bears in the yard growing up? Bears beats Battlestar Galactica. Did you ever see bears growing up when you lived here? Yes, but mainly more in the backyard where it's a little bit more wooded and secluded where they can kind of dip back into the cover. So that is a little odd that it was in that particular location, but I didn't know that was your first time seeing the bear there. And then that's pretty close. Yeah. I've seen bears other places in the upper Valley. I mean, we, right. I, I had to stop halfway through mowing your parents' lawn when they were on vacation. Cause there was a bear stalking me. Um, <laughs> but this is the so first great. time I've ever seen a bear on Canaan street, like in our yard, basically. So it, it was a weird experience. I wasn't even scared. Like, one thing people don't know about black bears is they're they're pretty timid animals. They're yes. not that much bigger than humans. Like they'd have to be super super like either you'd have to be aggressive towards them or they would have like you'd have to be around their cubs for them to really come after you. They're just not going to do it, especially like not in the woods, like in an open field. They're not going to do it. They're going to avoid you if they can. So I wasn't scared, but I was just like, there's a bear in my front yard. What the heck? Yeah, it's still unnerving. If you've never seen a bear, even if it's a, a, like a black bear, like I said, they tend to be a little bit more skittish, but they're still a wild animal. Yeah. They're still pretty big and they're kind of freaky looking. Like it's yeah. one thing to see them at a zoo or to see them on the internet, but when they're kind of right up in your business or they could easily turn and kind of come towards you, yeah, and they're it's fast. freaky. Yeah, yeah they they're, are not, fast. they're not slow animals. So if that bear had decided to turn around and charge at me, I'm not sure that I could have gotten up, up the stairs and into the house before it got to me. That's how close oh, it was. Oh, no. It's, it, so, yeah, it's, it's if you want some, come and get some. I mean, yeah. they'll be right up on top of that you. That would have been a fight. Quickly. I would have unleashed the dog and let her run away. <laughs> to, you know, she would have come back and I would have like wrapped the leash around the bear's neck. I'd have been punching it, like stabbing in the eye with my thumb. It would have been a mess. It would have been Elbow bad. dropping it. That would have been some like, David slash Samson style interaction. Yeah, exactly. I, I feel like my money would have been on you. The I would need would a jawbone in. of some sort. I'd have to find a donkey <laughs> jawbone to slay the bear. <laughs> I'd like to think that you would have slain the bear and then made like a, a long tooth necklace out from it. And you yeah. just wear that. People would be like, what is that? Be like, 
How about you ask the bear that it came from? It's true. Little known fact about bears. I mean, this is from the Bible, but bears and bald people <laughs> have this special affinity where yeah, we're like, we're like true. super tight with each other. So I'd have been like, that's hey, yo, true. remember Elisha, the bald head? Like, you got to listen to me now. This is how it works. That's true. So like you looked at the bear, it, it winked at you and it was yeah. like, we have an accord. I was like, there's some kids down the street. Could you go take care of that for me? <laughs> Jump on it. You're not Elisha. <laughs> I wish there was a matching quote to that effect. We could call uh, the guys from Lightest Form of Flogging and ask them to make a Matt Chandler impersonation of that. Oh, that's great. Yeah. We should definitely do that. All right. What about you? What are you denying? All right. So I'm proposing that we start an intermittent segment on our podcast called Adventures in Romans Chapter One, oh, man. where we just describe the pure craziness of humanity that has traded the truth of God for a lie and all the kind of devastation that causes. And this is where, in fact, for today, my denial lies because I'm denying the way in which I've seen and so many people, and I'm, I'm just going to use my own friends for example. These are people that, people that I actually have a relationship with. And I've been starting to have some conversation with them because of the way they're expressing everything that's going on in the world. And here's what the denial is. It's that I see so many people rightfully saying things like, listen, we need to stand up against any kind of other human being taking the life, snuffing out life from any other human being for under any circumstance because of where they are, who they happen to be or where they were born or whether they're weak. And so I think all of us Christians would say like a hearty amen to that. Like it's, it's about time yeah. that people, at least, even if they're importing the Christian or Judeo-Christian worldview, right. and they're having to smuggle in this idea of value, even while let's say even they disparage God or deny him. Even so, with all that said, it's a great common grace of God yeah. that people will be saying all this right now. And so here's the thing though, that I find like the adventures in Romans one, and that is that I've seen so many of these same people while they're virtue signaling that what we need to do is stand up and that all lives matter. So many of them said like, well, if you're against LGBTQ community, if you're against Muslims, if you are intolerant, then you can't be using the hashtag all lives matter. You should be saying all Christian white, you know, lives for my community matter. And one, that logic, of course, is so immensely flawed that we don't even have time to go into just like the how that's such poor construction of an argument. But the second thing is, so many of these people, again, these are good friends of mine, they will at one point say, we need to protect all lives. At the same time, they are virtue signaling by saying things three months ago that were like this. But the right to choose is a fundamental judicial yeah. right. And yeah. abortion is a legitimate form of justice. Yeah. That's the problem, right? So like, this is what's so crazy to me is like, there's virtue signaling happening on both sides and they are not compatible with each other. Yeah. And it's... It grieves me to the point of anger because what we have here is, yeah, just Romans one. So like, I'm, I'm trying to bring this segment back in. So I'm, I'm just denying this, this lack of ability to see that there's an inconsistency both logically and then of course biblically, in this idea that all lives matter when we're not willing to concede that we're destroying life in the womb and that life, of course, matters. I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, and like maybe I should say like just by way of disclosure, like I'm pro like life. I am pro love. I'm pro loving your neighbor. I'm pro justice. Yeah. I'm pro Tony. Like I'm pro all these things. <laughs> so it, it's just like, I, I just, it's just so crazy. So in some ways it's been a wonderful opportunity and a point of entry to have some real conversation with some people that I love dearly yeah. about like what it means to espouse that view and how we need to be consistent in that. And yet at the same time, 
never before have I been like so increasingly convinced that of course Paul by the power of the Holy Spirit just gets it right. Like it's just yeah. just take that paragraph in Romans one, and I could say like this is exactly what's happening right now. So yeah. I'm trying to bring this idea back. Like maybe we should just we can throw that out on the um, the Facebook group as well. Like when you see like you know adventures in Romans one happening, you can just <laughs> call it out. It needs to but, be a hashtag. We need guess, a good hashtag so. for it. I It'd guess be so. like this is your Romans one moment. <laughs> like. Yeah, yeah. You, you're totally right. It's funny, you know, Ashley, um, Ashley's been like renting movies from the library. And one of the things that happens when you rent movies from the library is you end up with like these old, like classic movies. And one of the movies she recently rented is one of my favorite movies. It's A Few Good Men with uh, Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson. Have you seen this movie? I've never seen it. You've never seen it. Oh my gosh, go get it. It's so good. <laughs> so the, the story, the story of the, the movie is that um, Jack Nicholson is a general on uh, it, on a military base, and uh, two two men on his base do this like hazing thing to a third. Oh, is this the military. I can't handle the truth? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't handle the truth. It's that okay, scene. Okay, I've seen part and of so, it. So the the premise is it's a trial where there's these two men on on trial for murder of a third man, and the the story goes that this is like a like a legal drama, and they're trying to demonstrate that these men were acting on someone's orders. And so okay. at the end of the movie, there's no real evidence. And so it becomes this kind of battle of, of wits and personalities between Tom Cruise as the, the prosecutor and Jack Nicholson as the uh, witness on the stand who Tom Cruise thinks is actually the one who gave the order. And what, what happens, and this is total spoiler, so I know you haven't seen it, but too bad. You, you That's forfeited okay. your I'll right. I'll take it. You, this movie came out like 25 years ago, so spoiler <laughs> alert, I guess. Statue your limitations but over basically what happens is he he traps him in his own like his own inconsistency so he asks him if it's possible that the men that men in a certain situation disobeyed his orders and jack nicholson out of his pride says my men always follow my orders and so then he says so why why did you have to have this guy transferred why would he be in danger if you gave the order that he was to be left alone and your men always follow their orders then why why was he in any danger? And so like from that moment on, it's probably a 15 minute interaction between Jack Nicholson and Tom Cruise. And you can see Jack Nicholson's character just start to unravel as he realizes he finally has, has tipped over that point where his inconsistencies are going to catch up with him. And I feel like we're at we're in that moment right now in the world right. where like people are so like they're so dedicated to like um autonomy and personal choice that like all of a sudden we're in this pandemic and they're like, how dare you not wear your mask and, and pose a risk to me. And it's like all of a sudden this idea of bodily autonomy is out the window. Like my right. bodily autonomy, not to wear a mask. And we, I mean, we talked about this last week. Like, I think you should wear a mask. I think that loving your neighbor well and obeying the sixth commandment requires us in most circumstances to be willing to wear a mask in public. Agreed. But like this idea that I no longer have the autonomy not to wear my mask if I so choose like totally flies against the pro choice argument. And I was having, I was having this discussion with someone yesterday that the, the liberal side of things is fundamentally hypocritical, right? They're, they're all about freedom of expression and freedom of speech until you start to express something they disagree with, right? They're all right. about bodily autonomy until you decide uh, that you want to use your bodily autonomy in a way that they disagree with. 
they're all about tolerance for everybody until uh, it's time to be tolerant of your view that they view as intolerant. So you're you're absolutely right that like this this Romans one and Romans two perspective that like humankind mankind is turned in on itself right in curvata say that the classic Lutheran uh, phrase that comes right out of Luther and, and gets picked up in Calvin it really comes from Augustine um, and then you go into Romans two and it's like do you practice the things that you say are sinful? Like, who are you? Exactly. Old man? Like it, it, it just flips over on you. And, and that really is like where all of us are without, without Christ. Like we're in this, this trap of self-contradiction that just is going to destroy us. Yeah, I agree with that. And I'm not saying anything that of course, a lot of other people that are far more eloquent and articulate haven't said before me, even in most recent days, this idea, it's just humbling to remember that as we talked about last week, and we don't need to rehash all that, we, we'll, we need to be committed to loving God and, and right. loving our neighbor. And in being obedient to those two things, what we see, of course, is that God, of course, stands sometimes superimposed, but su- certainly superintending above all governments. And because of that, like the government itself is not willing to take the cost that is required if it presumably, even if it could, it cannot, it will not, it will not volitionally choose to undertake the cost that is required to bring this kind of quote unquote repairing of all the things in our world right now that are off center, out of kilter, or broken. Right. Because the cost that was required is for the God man to come and to be sacrificed. Yeah. That, that is the cost that's required. It's something the government can't pay. It's not even went in its wherewithal to be able to offer that kind of price. Yeah. And so really this has to come by way of the Christian worldview and ethic through the grace of Christ by the practice in the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's why it's like, I think we're not trying to be hyperbolic when we say like, we need to be about the father's business. We need to be seeking that kind of kingdom. And some of that happens just by way of hopefully the conversations we're having with others when we're again, trying to point out some of the inconsistencies here, because there's something in that it's not innate goodness, of course, but it is the common grace of God to like see a logic in taking a look at the injustice that happened in our world and saying, this is not just inappropriate. It's heinous. We yeah. cannot stand for this, yeah. but to not stand for it in one place means we must not stand for it in every place. And so that is where I think I, I see like the, yeah, the hashtag Romans one adventures coming into play. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. That's a good, uh, a good reminder for us all. And in some ways that's kind of as best as I can construct one, a bridge into the topic tonight, because <laughs> we're, we're into, I say that somewhat tongue in cheek, like we're getting, like you said, into this kind of different section. Now we went through. 500 years, 500 yeah. years of different preachers and got a sense for like how they kind of applied reformed preaching. And this, of course, we're talking about Joel Beakey's book, Reformed Preaching by the same title. And we're in chapter 20 now. And now he's moving into basically saying, let's get into some of the practicality. Let, let me give you some instruction and not in how do you logistically like put together sermons, but how do you approach preaching? And, and I want to say the first thing off the top that really just kind of blew me away was that I think the reason why this is so helpful for all people is because you could replace in some ways the idea of preaching with like, here's how you interact appropriately from a reform perspective online. Here's yeah. how you have conversations with your neighbors. Here's how you talk to your coworkers in the reform tradition. It's not just about preaching. And of course, like as hearers of preaching, this is so helpful to us. But even beyond that, as we just communicate what we believe is to be the rule of life and faith, I think he does such a good job with that. Yeah. And this is like really intensely 
pragmatic and practical. So like, even if you haven't been tracking so far, just get the book and start in chapter 20, because I think you will really be ministered to by what he says about how we can start to behave in ways that are really honoring of the gospel. And he yeah. basically starts, and I think an interesting place, and that is he talks about embracing the fact that in Christianity, they're objective and subjective elements. And he actually gives this amazing word picture, which I really love, or this kind of analogy. He talks about preaching as if it's walking a greased tightrope, yeah. because that is how hard it is to do it well. And I think anybody who's a Christian, maybe in particular a Reformed Christian, has had the experience, not just with cage stage Calvinism, but this idea that we tend to fall off the rope by going one way or the other into an extreme and to balance love and intellectualism and hard fact with like true and spirit inspired emotion is challenging. So he starts yeah. with this idea of objective and subjective elements. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And and like, isn't that the truth? Like if you think about interacting <laughs> yes. with, right with whether it's our, like our podcast, I think you and I try very hard not to get sucked into just this like navel gazing academic theology. And I can speak personally for myself. There's a line in here that it's probably, it's probably underlined in your copy too, but um, I'm going to read it. This is jumping the gun a little bit because it's sort of midway through the chapter. Let's do but it. But he says, if you read 17th century reform scholastic <laughs> theological treatises by William Ames or Francis Turretin, Francis, Francis Turretin, for your devotions, then you probably need to push yourself to emphasize the experiential more. I felt like I was just setting up like a, you might be a redneck joke, um, <laughs> but like, that's the truth. Like I read yes. Kerman Witsius economy of the covenants between God and man. Like I read that during my devotion. So like that, that, that phrase there, that thing was like written straight to my heart. And I think you and I try very hard on the show not to get sucked into like the totally abstract, theoretical, divorced from practice and piety theology that I honestly, if I'm being honest, like I tend towards and the reformed world as a whole, I think tends towards. And so this chapter, I think you're absolutely right that he's talking about preaching, but you could just replace every time he says the word preaching, you could replace it with like living as a reformed Christian. Like it's, it's a right. good general corrective for all of us to think about that as much as our mind is important and we tend, we tend to sort of be pushing against, you know, I remember when I was in, I was in this, ref, this Facebook group called um, the Christian apologetic Alliance. And I, I don't actually know exactly how I ended up in that group. I, I don't remember the way it, it got there. It was kind of a weird place for me to be, but I ended up in this group and, and there was a lot of times where, even though it was like an apologetics based Facebook group, it became very much like, well, you just got to love Jesus. Like it, it became like that, that sort of mere Christianity. All that matters is that you love Jesus thing. And so right. I kept on pushing back saying like, no, we're called to love the Lord, not just with our heart, but with our mind. Like we're called to love the Lord with our whole being. And as whole beings, we have minds, but at the same time, we're called to love the Lord with our hearts too. And so this, this chapter was a really good corrective for me as I think about that of like, in my devotions, am I spending as much time praying and seeking the Lord and seeking the experiential element of my faith as I am reading, you know, Herman Witsius' Economy of the Covenants Between God and Man? So, I mean, we're among brothers and sisters here, right? So I think we can be like really candid with this yeah. because I read that and thought the same thing. And in the sentence that follows after it, to be fair to him, he talks about how if more or less you're just concerned with feeling that that's also equally a problem. Right. 
And you probably need to go back and overweight your exposure to doctrine. And this is the thing, like my heart, my normative position, the way I'm going to bend is an objective truth. And so he talks about like, there, there is a reality. Jesus praises a high priestly prayer. There is only one true God. And so of course, as Christians committed to that truth, that central truth, that what we do sometimes, or at least for myself, is we tend to go there, we overemphasize that thing. And then he bends this a little bit and challenges it by saying, you know, there is a subjective experience. Like, I think sometimes, not, I would say I wasn't raised this way, but I sometimes get this sense deep somewhere in my heart and my mind and the recesses of what I'm thinking. I will sometimes believe that the word subjective is a dirty word. Yeah. That this idea of subjective experience is something I don't want to even get anywhere near to. And so I not only shy away from it, I actually spur it, spurn it, I shun it. But he says, listen, subjective experience, the knowing of this God, this true God, is something that is embraced by the human soul, like yeah. in the essence of your being. And that knowledge is not merely, of course, an intellectual exercise. It's life transforming. It's, it's life giving. It is, in fact, eternal life. That's what God is talking about when Jesus says to know God is eternal life, to know the one true God. It's not, of course, just like God stalking, like going through God's trash. Yeah. It's like actually having this relationship. But I, myself in particular, I like talk a good game where it's easy to say, yeah, of course, I know it's not just about knowing facts. I want to know God. But like, how do we get from the knowing facts into a place where we're like equally concerned and practicing this idea of like experientially, subjectively experiencing God? Yeah. You know, the, the analogy uh, that works, I think, is... You know, if I meet a girl, obviously I'm married, but let's pretend I'm single, right? If I meet a girl and I'm interested and all I ever do is like like follow her on Facebook and read every post and look at all of right. her pictures right. and figure out all of the things she likes, like that's creepy, right? If, if that's all I ever do is is read everything she ever says on Facebook, that's a stalker, Right. On the flip side, if all I ever do is sit in her presence and stare into her eyes, like that's just baseline of infatuation, right? right? So, so there's this element of of knowing someone experientially, but then also knowing them in terms of knowing them in your mind, understanding who they are, understanding what they like, understanding the facts about them. Those two things have to come together in a healthy relationship between, between a man and a woman or between two friends, like all, any sort of earthly human relationship, those two things have to come together, even in a business relationship, right? If I go into a business negotiation and I'm trying to, trying to sign a contract for my business to bring on a new vendor or something like that, and all I ever do is learn facts about their company, but I never, I never shake the man across the table's hand. And, and, you know, like make an actual relationship with him. Like that's not a healthy relationship. So we oftentimes think about God in one way or another. We think about either I need to understand all the facts about God as though that were somehow possible. Or I need to understand the experience of God and, and the facts don't really matter as though you can somehow experience someone without knowing any facts about them. We right. have to be exactly. able to take those. And that's that's why the chapter is called Preaching with Balance. But we could call it like living with balance. Like you have to have this balance. And when we, when we say balance, this is what I, I think can be a struggle is balance doesn't mean 50-50. It doesn't mean that, yes. that everything is equally weighted. It means that everything is in an appropriate proportion to what it should be. And, right and for certain people, for some people, 
it probably is more important for them to have an intellectual relationship and understanding of God because of who God has made them to be and because of the place that these called them in life. I would actually say for most pastors, it's important for the intellectual to be in place because that's where we run into danger. That's where we run into heresy is when we, we have this experiential like relationship with God and experiential understanding of God divorced from the facts of who God is and divorced from the facts that that scripture presents. You know, I think it's funny because every once in a while I'll, I'll get in a discussion online with someone and, and most commonly this comes up about William Lane Craig, although it could be any number of people, but I'll get in this discussion and I'll say something like, well, William Lane Craig denies the doctrine of the Trinity in, in what he says. He's, it's a functional and a, an implicit denial of the Trinity and they'll say something like, well, wh- what kind of knowledge do you have to, how many facts do you have to know in order to be saved? It's like they're denying the idea that there is some sort of factual element to our faith. But knowledge of the facts of the gospel, the facts of the historical redemptive acts of Christ are required. Like the Nicene Creed has part of its uh, affirmations there that Christ died and suffered under Pontius Pilate. Like the fact that that was Pontius Pilate that condemned him to death is a central tenet of our faith. We like we don't think right. about it that way. So there is this factual element, but there's also, as we've been saying, like there's also this experiential element or subjective objective. That's the the heuristic here being used. This subjective element of the faith that like we have to actually feel and know and receive and understand and appropriate and and be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, not just know about the Holy Spirit. Right. Uh, that's what's really interesting about this chapter is that there is this sense, I like how you put it, that what balance means is basically like parity of influence and parity of importance. Right. And I think I'm tracking with you. I like what you said about, you know, certainly there might be a calling to like a higher level of, let's say, knowledge, because there's right. a responsibility to teach that. And so what I would say is I think that that needs to be then paired with a higher level of the right. opposite influence, which would be this heartfelt emotion, subjective experience. Because, of course, we don't want just pastors who are eggheaded without right. any kind of experience. And yet we don't want just pure subjective experience because, of course, that's a load of trouble without any kind of actual real head knowledge to right. rein in that. And Beakey quotes Charles Bridges at two points in the chapter in this section. And they're just like phenomenal quotes. And they're yeah. so pithy. Um, And one of them is that he writes, Christian experience is the influence of doctrinal truth upon the affections. That is just so good. Like that, that is such a concise way to explain how both those things should exist together. And then he also says uh, of, of the life of Christianity, this is Bridges again, it consists not in the exposition, but in the application of doctrine to the heart for sanctification and comfort of the sincere Christian. Yeah. So, what was challenging for me is Beaky basically says, actually he says it, I think in more or less these words, do we glory in knowing Christ? You know, it's one thing to glory self-righteously in our knowledge about Christ, but it's another thing to glory humbly in Christ as our only wisdom and righteousness. And that I think is the rub. Like we ought to do a little bit of self-reflecting. We ought to take inventory of how we understand our knowledge. Because in reading this chapter, I was thinking about the fact that there's so much that I know Maybe perhaps one could argue everything that I know 
comes from outside of myself. None of it is like intrinsic or inherent or innate for the most part. Right. And so if this knowledge, this body of knowledge, this divine body of knowledge that God has given us because he's opened our eyes through the Holy Spirit to understand what he has written to us, that not only comes from the outside, but the ability to understand it comes from the outside. Then how can we take any pride whatsoever in that? Like, how can yeah. we use that as leverage, as a weapon, as some kind of bargaining chip? Like, we need to, when we, I think when we start to understand how our knowledge is an experiential knowledge that is balanced out fact with affection, then it changes even how we use it. And that's why I think, like, this chapter is like particularly good toward like guiding online behavior, really, yeah. like online interaction on Facebook, on Twitter just read this chapter. I think it'll change your life. Yeah. And you know, I I would not be being honest if I said that I got this right all the time or even most of the time, right? Well, who does? Well, and and I'll be honest, like I tend to struggle towards the intellectual side, like big surprise, everybody. Like I tend to be more cerebral than, you know, emotive, but, but like that's reality for me is that when I sit down and I'm going to have some sort of interaction online, I frequently have to step back and be like, wait a second. Like, this is a person on the other end. Like I'm not engaging in some right. realm of pure ideas where all that matters is whether my logical syllogism is more sound than their logical syllogism. Like there's a person on the other end of that keyboard. But at the same time, there are lots of people online where it's almost like the logical syllogism doesn't matter. And that's what's hard about about trying to live in this world that that is comprised both of logic and of, of feeling like we, we, we're whole people that have both of those elements that need to cohere. You know, kind of like we're talking about with the Romans one thing, like like in a lot of ways, our world right now is a result of feelings without logic. Like it's a result of feelings becoming the central reality, like in a philosophical sense, like the postmodernism is the turn to the subjective. That's the definition of postmodernism. Right. It's not that there's not objective truth out there. That's that's a misunderstanding of postmodernism. Postmodernism does not say that there is no objective truth. Postmodernism says that since everybody is a subject, the only access to objective truth that we have is through our own subjective experience. And so it's not that your truth is necessarily also my truth or that your truth is is not um, dependent on and relied on subjective truth is that your subjective experience cannot overcome my subjective experience because both of us are subjectively experiencing some objective truth. And so our, our world right now is so far towards the subjective that a lot of times anybody who's trying to speak objectively or think objectively is seen as this cold, calculating person who has no understanding of the way the world really works. But in reality, without that objective reality, without that objective understanding, um, you really can't understand the way the world works because the world works objectively. Like the world is right. the object. And so that that's what that's what I think is interesting is as as Christians and I th- I think particularly as reformed Christians um we have to like understand that there's no ground for objective truth apart from God. Like there's no ground for this objectivity in the world apart from the reality that there is this objective reality that exists beyond our comprehension, beyond our apprehension entirely, and that reality is God. So God sets yes. the stage. God is the one whose objective and subjective knowledge is the same thing. 
our objective and subjective knowledge can never be the same thing. Like there is a, there's an element of truth in postmodernism in that I only ever experience and understand objective reality through my own subjective experience where I think it goes wrong is, you know, postmodernism wants to say that it's impossible to ever bypass or get past subjective reality. And I actually wrote a paper in seminary. I hadn't intended to talk about this, but I wrote a paper in seminary talking about how the only way to actually access, uh, access objective truth is through God who can, who can give us access to that objective truth because he, he is the only objective observer in terms of, um, his experience of reality and reality itself uh, experience isn't the right word, but like the way that God understands and knows reality is utterly truthful where our understanding of reality is always colored and influenced and is not always or even or, or ever utterly truthful in the same way that God's is. Yes. Yes. I actually, I really like that because I've often thought I haven't considered it in quite those terms but I've been on the same wavelength because I've often thought that because God is the progenitor of all things objective, that is, he actually is not concerned as we often are with how things appear, but he actually right. is concerned with how they actually are. He can see all that stuff that only the Christian has the kind of vision that is clear and unclouded. And part of that is we fight against our sinful nature. We go to the scriptures for that clarion vision because we know God gives it to us there and because he is the objective source of all reality and all truth. So what's funny is you do see this everywhere and you see when it breaks down because what happens is somebody perhaps with like a very extreme postmodern worldview might come forward and say something like this. Where, so they're going to simultaneously try to deconstruct and dismantle objective truth all the while that they're actually supporting it by the very things that they're saying. Yeah. So somebody that comes forward and says something like, everything is meaningless. We're presuming that there is meaning in the statement itself. So of right. course, like in that, there is the objective reality in which they live, which they're trying to communicate something of meaning all the while they're trying to infer that actually everything is not full of the meaning right. that they're trying to impose by what they're saying. Right. So like, yeah, I, I like, this is what's, man, it's just hashtag Romans one adventures all over again. But I think this is why what Beaky says is so good because we need to still be tethered to this concept. I think at the end of the day that if there's an absence of substantial and I'm going to use like substantial, significant, those words, substantial, significant, weighty doctrinal instruction, then if you're trying to call people to Christ, there's there's not going to be any reason for them to come because they won't know either who Christ is or why it is necessary for right. them to come. Yeah. And so, so much of preaching, I think, I think he talks about this in several places. He basically says like, we treat conversion these days as if it's an easy thing. Yeah. Like just make the choice, just come forward, just pray the prayer. And he really emphasizes that one, it's a, oftentimes it's absent the kind of strong doctrinal instruction and context and foundation that's necessary to really understand what's happening here. But then more often than not, when you do this kind of thing, what you do is you don't give somebody the, you know, we say all the time, like, well, Jesus is the answer, but we don't ask what the question is. Right. And so when we do that, again, separate or divorce from real doctrine, what happens is, is people end up creating a savior that's an idol because they do it in their imagination, in their own mind. Yeah. It meets some kind of felt need. It's God as deistic, therapeutic, you know, cosmic 
gumball machine where yeah. like or butler where I just ask for what I want and he gives me some kind of bomb to you know take away the suffering that I have with respect to my own felt needs. Yeah. So I'm with you. Like I think what we're saying is like yeah like we need to have this kind of feeling that's subjective and experiential. But it I, I almost want to say that and maybe he would disagree with me. So I'm curious what you think if this is too extreme. I really think that the head has to come first, that the, the be renewed by the transformation of your mind yeah. has to precede the heart because when the mind is changed, then the affections can come alongside in an appropriate and complementary way yeah. that I would say like equals up to that level of passion that is equal then to the knowledge. And so you get them in this kind of beautiful commensurate, like even handedness and parody. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and you know, I don't know whether that's a function of um, – uh, how do I want to say this? Like, I think that's just a function in a lot of ways of just logical necessity, right? Like your your heart can't – and obviously when we say heart, we're talking about emotions. Like we're not talking about like your, your actual heart muscle. Like you can't emotionally appropriate something or experience something – unless you've intellectually appropriated it as well. Like a, a movie can't emotionally affect me until I've actually like processed what, what the movie is. Right. So, so even just in terms of like our own thinking process and the way that it occurs, it has to come through our intellect before it can impact our emotions. And like, that's not always true. Like you can be afraid of something without, without understanding it. Like you can be afraid of something that, that you haven't, comprehended yet but on some level like it has to start in your brain before it can affect anything else in your body right and you know i i think biblically speaking you know when we talk about the the classic understanding and the classic definition in protestant circles of what faith is it has to start with this intellectual apprehension of the facts like i was saying early like the facts of the gospel have to be present right i have to understand that Christ walked the earth, that Christ died on a cross, that Christ uh, was, you know, that he was who he says he was. I have to appropriate that and believe that fact before I can believe that that fact has any bearing on my life. And so even when we talk about like the logic of faith, the logic of faith starts with facts hitting our consciousness, facts being appropriated in our mind, and then us understanding that those facts actually mean something for our lives. And then right from on. there, that those things that we, we believe are true, believe that those things that are true mean something for our lives. And then that, that becomes uh, resting in those facts, resting in the reality of what those facts point to. Right. So yeah, you're, I think you're absolutely right that the, the objective reality, and, and this is just like, it just makes sense. Like this, all of a sudden just, just clicked. Like I made it made more comp way more complicated than it had to be. The objective precedes the subjective. There has to be an objective yes. to experience before you can subjectively experience it. You can't subjectively experience something that doesn't exist. Yes, exactly. Dare we say that intent precedes content? Oh my goodness. <laughs> I'm so excited that you said that. I'm about to run through a wall. Well, I, I just thought about that with respect to what you said about yeah. the subjective, because I, I think that's that's right on. And so... I know we're like short on time as always, but there's one other thing I wanted to bring up in this chapter that he talks about that is with respect to balance. And I actually think this is not something new to you or I, but I think it's worth just mentioning at least in passing. And that is, so he talks about this objective subjective balance that itself is worth reading about, but he also talks about just how important it is. I, this is why I'm going to paraphrase what he says. He kind of, I think says 
get over yourselves, everybody. Preach and speak fully and in both ways with equal force on God's sovereignty and man's responsibility when it comes to yeah. all matters of faith and life. And I just love that he does that. He's kind of like, don't be, don't shy away from it. Don't think that by preaching one is to undermine the other. Yeah. This is what the Bible teaches. And so we ought to be, in some ways, I think he's saying like proud, rest in the scriptures. These are rooted in the nature of God and his relation to his creatures. And so he's almost like, just let it rip. Like yeah. sometimes you're going to be preaching God's sovereignty or talking about it in a way that seems heavy handed. And other times you're going to have to speak about man's responsibility yeah. in a way that might seem heavy handed, but they both need to be emphasized. So just get over yourselves and embrace the mystery, love God and preach his word. Yeah. You know, that that's something that I'm learning as a, as a preacher, um, you know, I, I preach maybe five, six times a year. And, you know, when I used to preach, uh, I would come and I would have some topic in my mind. And, and sometimes people do topical sermons where like they, they give a motivational speech or a lecture and they kind of like sprinkle scripture on top of it to give it like a little right. flavor of the Bible. That's not what I would do. Like I, I would have a topic I wanted to talk about and then I would I would go to the place in the Bible where that topic is taught, right? I wouldn't be necessarily um, importing stuff into the text, but I wasn't necessarily starting from the text. I would start from what I wanted to teach, and then I would go find the text that taught that, which is a little different than some of the eisegetical stuff that you see. But as I grow as a preacher, and this really hit me, you know, he starts talking on page 358 about letting the scripture set the agenda. And I'm not one of those guys that thinks that the only viable way of doing scripture or doing preaching is to, um, you know, preach verse by verse, you know, spend 50 years preaching the gospel of Luke and don't do anything else. Like, I think it's okay to do topical sermons and to, um, to have series that aren't necessarily, you know, scripture continua, but I'm becoming more and more convinced that rather than starting with a topic or a series, that more often than not, what we need to do is we need to start with where does the scripture need to be studied? Like what, what right. where is it in the in the life of this congregation that the scripture needs to start from? And and you know that may mean you just start in Genesis, like you just go through Genesis. It, you may you know I, I have a friend who's sort of a newer pastor who is coming into a congregation that really is struggling with like the basics of the faith. They're, they're the basics of Christian doctrine. And so, you know, he, he goes to a place where, where it's a, it's a pastor writing about the basics of the doctrine, right? That might mean you go to, uh, you go to Ephesians, right? You go to Ephesians, which is, is Paul writing to a congregation and sort of giving them an outline of what it means to be the church. Or maybe you go to Romans, maybe you come to a church that's struggling with the gospel itself, with justification by faith and doesn't understand that. So you go to Romans, you know, you, you, you have to look at that. Or maybe, maybe you have a congregation that is struggling because they've never studied the Old Testament. All they've ever studied is the Bible stories, but they never actually studied the Bible. So you just start right. in Genesis, you go through the Pentateuch, and then maybe you go to the Psalms. And I think that's something that I'm growing in as, as a person who's learning to be a preacher, is you have to start with the scriptures. You have to say, all right, I may not have an assigned text. Like I'm gonna be uh, I'm gonna be preaching in a couple a couple weeks here. Um, you know, the pastor is going to be going on vacation. I'm going to be filling in for two weeks. Where do I start? Well, I'm probably just going to say, Hey, you know, dad, give me, give me two passages you want me to teach. 
maybe I'm going to go the last several times I've preached, I've just picked short books that I could cover in a single sermon so that I could do that. I could do that exercise. I'm going to teach this actual book. I'm going to go to Jude. What does Jude have to say to us? Well, at the time that I was going through Jude, what Jude had to say to us was that we need to get back to the understanding that contending for the faith largely has to do with contending for our own personal holiness in the congregation that we're in. Right where I went to Philemon. Philemon largely had to do with the fact that a new Christian in our midst is just as much a part of the family of God as someone who's been here for 30 years. Right? That, all of that is there in the text. And the, the text sets that agenda. But if I had gone to it and said, well, this is what I want to teach the congregation. What scripture, what scripture can I use? There's some value in that. Right? There, there's sure. some value in that. But there's a divine logic in the scripture that we don't always think about unless you're going through the text kind of passage by passage in order. Well, there's a superior value, right? right. In letting the scripture set the agenda, not just by way of, like you said, like continuous, contiguous preaching across like some kind of book, which is also fine. I mean, I think that we would all say right. we've been blessed by that kind of preaching and teaching. And I would say often when pastors undertake that, it's with a keen eye and a sensitive heart toward the needs of their congregation. They're exactly. just picking up something that they're like, well, this would be interesting to go through. Like we haven't done John in a while. They're actually sensing, they're doing the very thing I think actually that you call them to, which is right. they're sensing the need. And this is why like the, presuppos- the presuppositional nature of what we're talking about is so important because again, rather than starting this idea of saying, well, I'm going to try to explain the world, especially to an unbeliever or non-Christian, by equalizing my worldview with theirs and saying, well, let's presume that God doesn't exist. And let me from that place or vantage point, try to construct an argument. We just start with the Romans one approach, which is like, well, I know how you're thinking about this, because we know that we all on our own exchange the truth of God for a lie. And so because of that, I cannot get around the fact that the Bible tells us the truth about reality. And so therefore, if I'm Let's say if I want to preach on anxiety or fear, or I want to talk about what it means to serve God or to be generous, that you're right. We shouldn't start with the Reader's Digest version. Like, here are some good principles about giving. And so let me find in the scripture a place that coheres with my argument. Instead, it's let me find where generosity is embedded deep within the text or what the example is given for us so that we might just like really just soak that in. Like we could chew on it for a while. And I think in so doing, sometimes we find that the argument that we wanted to make either is correct and it's strengthened, or we find that we were a little bit off the mark. And so the Bible provides us a superior amount of instruction and direction that we didn't anticipate. And actually I'm guessing this happened to you because this has happened to me in in the form of teaching is I think I know where I want to go. And so I go to the passage, I go to the scriptures knowing that place where I know that this is something that's dealt with, that it's processed. And by the time it's done, I'm in full of such doxology because not only did it go in another direction, but where I thought there would be slant amount of material, where I thought there'd be sparse resource, I find that there's so much more than I could have ever anticipated. And it's so much better than I could have created on my own if I tried to go in the other direction and just fit the scripture in. Yeah. Yeah. And you're you're absolutely right. And this is... um this goes back to what we said about balance earlier, right? The title of this pa- passage or this chapter is preaching with balance. And when we think of balance, right, you have that picture of, of that guy on the tightrope. He's got that big, long bar. And what that bar is intended to do is it changes the center of gravity slightly and it, it distributes it more, right? And so the idea right. is you keep things even on both sides and that's what balance is. But biblical balance is not... Uh, is not balance in terms of um, 
every topic is addressed with even space, right? The Bible right. has more to say about some things than it does about other things. That doesn't mean that the things that it doesn't say much about or doesn't say as much about are somehow less important, but the Bible has its own standard of balance. And this, this is the quote that I think, I think it was at the beginning of the chapter, but it might as well have been the summary of the whole chapter. He says here, um, Right on the first page of the chapter, he says, the preacher must embrace the whole counsel of God as it impacts the whole man. And so th- that that's where I think, you know, biblically balanced preaching comes, comes from is understanding that, you know, if you go to uh, the book of Romans, for example, right, it has a lot to say about predestination. Right? There's, th- there's three whole chapters, basically, right in the middle of the book that have to do with predestination. But after right. those three chapters, there's six chapters that more or less are all about how to live a holy life in Christ. So if you come to the book of Romans and you go, I want to preach a sermon on predestination, so I'm going to go straight to Romans 8, 9, and 10, you know, and that's what I'm going to do. Well, that's fine. Like, yeah, you got to teach about predestination. But if you were to preach the book of Romans from start to finish— the amount of space and time spent on predestination should more or less track with the amount of space that the book itself spends on predestination. Right. So if you're preaching the book of Romans and you're spending, you know, 12 weeks talking about predestination and you spend one week at the end kind of talking about like what the practical import of this is, well, you're doing it wrong. Like you're just doing it wrong. Paul obviously thought that he needed six chapters more or less to speak about what it means to live a holy life in Christ, which includes right. things like, and this is the crazy part, right? We, we did an episode on church membership, and this was this is actually an episode that I get a lot of emails about when people stumble across it because it's like they never thought of it this way before. Paul includes the fact that there is a known, defined roster of people in a church that he's never been to, right? He has the ability to know who to address at a church that he's never visited. Right. Well, there's only one real answer for that. It's because there's some sort of membership in that church that he has access to. There's some sort of knowledge that's present in the broader Christian world of who's a part of the church in Rome than than is just a matter of like who happens to be there. That's part of the gospel or part of that's part of the gospel. That's part of <laughs> the letter to the Romans is that right. Paul understands and knows that. And so when we get through the book of Romans, we don't talk about church membership at all. And we spent all of our time talking about justification by faith, which is important, predestination, which is important, you know, all of these things that are really important, but we don't talk about the practical outflowing of that, right? This is a simple way to think about it. The fact that there are are roles in heaven, there's a book of life in heaven, should be reflected by the fact that there's a book of membership in the church, right? That's a very easy application to those, but I've I've never heard like a real sermon preached out of the book of Romans about church membership. Usually I hear that in like a Sunday school class where we're talking about membership already. And so we talk about what, what Romans has to say about it, but I've never heard a sermon that really draws that application. So I think that that quote that like, you have to apply the whole counsel of God because, and as it impacts the whole man, I think that that's a vital understanding that a lot of preaching misses these days. It is. And it's a good reminder that this is the Bible is helpful to us, not just because it's giving these these topics for us to cover that are important, but it's actually, I guess I could use this language, it's weighting them appropriately for us. Right, exactly. It's, it's giving us what is the proper diet. This is not unlike if you saw a qualified dietitian. 
of course, to say like you need to have a balanced diet, what they don't mean is like eat as much protein as you do sugar. Like that would be ridiculous. What they're saying is like everything has its place for the whole person, for the the building of life and the sustaining of activity and for the ability to be productive and healthy. And what's needed is not, again, everything in exact equality or equally measured out, but everything in its right proportion. And so the Bible helps us to do that. And this is why, incidentally, we've talked a lot about this too. It's just so important to be constantly reading your Bible, like the whole thing, like just to constantly be moving through it. So like, you, you and I and other people, our brothers and sisters, don't get stuck on a particular hobby horse where we place an undue emphasis. And that's all we want to talk about. That's all we're influenced by without understanding like the whole scripture. Right. And it's just important to kind of keep up those, those daily routines. So there's so much more I wish we could talk about in this chapter because it really is so good. He talks so much about the idea of how it's important to categorize how preachers, again, going back to this idea of categorizing where the hearers are, so to provide application. He talks about what you said with Paul in Romans, and he gives examples for of preaching of how like the Bible leads us into a place where it's never, ever very far from application. Yeah. Even the places where it's so weighty and thick with wonderful theological discourse that they are so closely and quickly followed by real application that he draws your mind to see these wonderful patterns in ways maybe that you've thought well, this is, you know, just a place where it's a treatise. And really he's showing you, no, no, if you look for this pattern, you're going to find it everywhere. And that's the kind of life we should have in all of our discourse. So yeah. hopefully it's like a teaser to people because they just go and just read this chapter because we're really getting into some really good stuff where it's, it's not just about, let's think through this stuff. It's about, Hey, why don't you go and put this into practice? Yeah. So, so that all leads me to one question. So okay. are you telling me that I should not drink as much beer as I do water. Like I shouldn't keep those things equal. Like I try to drink about 60 ounces of water a day. So does that mean I should not try to drink 60 ounces of beer a day? Cause that's what I've been doing. Listen, we are, what was it? Top 50 or higher now? Yeah. Healthcare we podcast. You know, it's funny because I, you had forwarded me, you had forwarded an email to me this week and you had forwarded it to my reform brotherhood email, which I, I rarely yes. check. And I got in there and there was actually several follow-ups to the top 50 healthcare email that I had not seen. They were Are like, you serious? They were like aggressively trying to get us to accept this award. So really? not only were we nominated, but they really wanted us to come to Las Vegas and accept this award. So that's, that's incredible. Well, so while we're kind of wrapping this up and on that topic, I did want to offer some accommodation and that was, I want to say I really, and I said this to you privately last week, uh, I'm still like a novice with the Facebook world. Like that for me is an adventure and like there's mores and customs that seem to transcend borders and geography and culture. And there's ways to interact there that I don't quite understand yet. I'm trying to learn all that stuff. And with all that said, I've been, I think part of the reason why I was against Facebook for the longest time is because all I knew about it was its abuses. That's all yeah. I ever heard. And so I've been so pleasantly and wonderfully surprised by our little group, our little small corner of the interweb in which people are willing to be gracious with one another where, and this is what I particularly love. People come into that space. And I want to say it this way. It's not that we have people per se of different levels of maturity because maturity and knowledge are not the same thing. Right. We certainly have different levels of like exposure to doctrine and to more nuanced understandings of theology. And what I love is that people who are trying to understand something just have a question or just trying to process something can say and are willing, are brave enough to say, yeah. I'm thinking about something like this. What do you think, brothers and sisters? Yeah. And people don't take that as like an opportunity to open up like a, a firing range on that person. There's constructive criticism and feedback that is loving and kind. I wish for all theological discourse to be more like that. Yeah. Yeah. And that that's just a testimony, I think, to 
like the the spiritual maturity of our listeners. Like people come and they listen to our show and people get benefit out of it. Some people don't and they stop listening and that's fine. But like sure. the 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 people that I've experienced and the people that I've interacted with who are listeners to our show, they really are serious about their faith and they're serious about learning. They're serious about understanding, but they're not just serious to bring it all around to like the topic of this chapter. They're not just serious about gaining more knowledge for the sake of knowledge. They're, they're serious about gaining knowledge because it's through not just not exclusively, but I think the majority first step is, is through the renewing of our intellectual capacities and mind. Right. It's through the renewing of our minds that we right. come to know and be transformed by the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Right. And and our listeners, the people in our group and not everybody who's in our group is a listener. Like there are people in the group who don't even know there's a podcast and that's fine. They're serious about learning and understanding in order to then grow closer to Jesus Christ. And that's what it's really all about. So that's a little bit of a plug. Like if you're not part of the Facebook group or would like to join, you can go check it out. It's you'll find it under Reform Brotherhood. And of course, you can always email us at info at Reform Brotherhood or better yet, leave a voicemail. If you have a question, there's a topic in mind that you would like us maybe to chat about. This is the joy of doing this kind of thing is that it really is communal. It, this really is a sense of brothers and sisters processing what it means, hopefully in the most balanced way as God allows us to all of these things. And so we love to hear from others, like this idea of having other voices, like sharpening one another by way of us coming together and yeah. studying theology so that it spurs on our emotions so that we are emo spiritually emotive in the most appropriate way, like yeah. fully committed with all that God has given us to exhibit in our lives. That is something that I think is uniquely suited toward the community of Christ. Yeah. So come and join us. What is that phone number though? Because you know, I don't know it. It's 607-444-2767. Bros. You know, I, before we wrap up, I recently started a new role in my job, which involves me calling a lot of people and that involves me leaving a lot of voicemails. Yeah. And, and so I frequently have to leave the, the department phone number. And what I've noticed is that I slip into the same cadence and tone of voice <laughs> when I leave that phone number on someone's uh, voicemail. I, I just slip into that 607-444-2767. Like I just slip into that cadence. Like it's it very like, pleasant. Like an old pair of pajama pants. It just fits perfectly. It's just that that voice. It's very pleasant. But like that's how like all numbers become at some point, like culturally. Like like your social is like, I mean, if you want to give it, you can. But you know that like bum 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 like that rhythm is Wait, do you you're giving me a look like do you say your social in like a weird No, no, way? no, but so this freaks me out and then we really have to close. Okay. This totally freaks me out. So like when when you spell your own like last name, there's a yeah. cadence that you use. And I'm going to guess, I may be wrong, but I'm going to guess that your entire family uses that same cadence. Uh, you know, like there's a uh, a set collection of letters that you use. <laughs> okay. And so when I spell okay. my last name, it's A R S E N A L, like 322. Two. When okay. your sister spells our last name, like my last name that she <laughs> yeah. has now, she does A R S E or A R S E N A L. Like she does it two 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 <laughs> one instead of three yeah, you, two. You need two. to have. So this is a bit, in my opinion, like the arc. You need to at least have the pairs. If you just have like the one vowel or synonym like hanging out by itself, yeah. I, I think that's like not good cadence. But it just you, you freaks need to me out. Like you can even hear it when I try to replicate it. I feel like I'm spelling my name wrong. Like I can't do it. It just yeah, drives I heard, me I heard crazy. I heard you with you. 
It just drives me crazy. It's just weird. All right, so last question. We gotta let's end on this. How what's the cadence that you think we spell our name with? <laughs> I, I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> I have no clue. Because there there is a there you're right. There is a cadence. And I think I, I picked it up from my parents because I would always hear them spell my name and because my last name has a silent yeah. letter at the end. You know what I'm talking about? Like there's yeah. that cadence where they actually enunciate and say, give an example of the last two letters and words that use them so as to make it abundantly clear. So yeah, I, I would I, say it's I find probably doing that. three S-C-H-W-A-M-B, right? Yes. Three, two, two, which is the weirdest thing because that's the, the cadence that I do for my name, three, two, two. But when your sister spells my last name, which is her last name, she does two, 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 one. Yeah, this conversation has been only interesting to us. No, I'm sure it's interesting to somebody. <laughs> See, here's the thing. You and I think that we're having a conversation that's only interesting to us. And then those ones where, where we're like, maybe we should just cut that out because I'm sure nobody cares right, right. about the cadence of how we spell our last name. Those are the ones where we get like a thousand voicemails and someone's like, <laughs> you changed my life. You changed my life with the spelling of your last that's name. That's true. That's true. So. Well, Here's hoping that that was as fruitful and productive for people as Dr. Joel Beakey talking about preaching in balance. Yes. You have to balance the cadence of how you spell your last name. Balance the cadence. And speaking of balancing things that are said, until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. <laughs> <laughs>